Praise the Lord. How blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. Father, we're here because we delight in you and in your word and in the joy of the fellowship of your people. And Father, we know that it's just a foretaste of what we will experience throughout eternity on a far grander and, and more glorious scale. And Father, we're just thankful that at this point we live in a society where this is possible. And we know that that is true simply because you have allowed it to be so. And Father, we know that we need to continue to pray for this country, for its leadership. Scripture teaches us to pray for the kings, for those who are in authority, and we do pray that you will touch our president, our Congress, our courts, and that you will work in this land to bring righteousness and justice to, to prevail. We ask, Lord, that you will cause the Church of the Living God to grow mightily across this land, that you'll bring a great revival, and that we will see a moving of God as never before in the history of this country. And Lord, we want to be a part of that personally, individually, as well as corporately. Lord, I ask that you will bless this time that we fellowship together around your word. We know that you're present here this morning because you promised to be so. And so we ask that you will remove the blinders from our eyes that we might see whatever it is you have to say to us today. And throughout this complex this morning, as the word of God is proclaimed, may it be living and powerful, and may it pierce to the very heart of every individual. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'll turn to the second chapter of Joshua, I'd like to read again beginning at verse 8. Now before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the terror of you has fallen on us and that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when he came out of Egypt, and that you and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sion and to Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And when we heard it, our hearts melted, and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Now, therefore, please swear to me by the Lord, since I have dealt kindly with you, that you will also deal kindly with my father's household and give me a pledge of truth and spare my father and my mother and my brothers and my sisters with all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. So the men said to her, our life for yours, if you do not tell this business of ours and it shall come about when the Lord gives us the land that we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. I think it can be clearly seen through what we've been studying in the, first, in the second chapter here of the book of Joshua, that the salvation of this woman Rahab is probably one of the most profound examples of grace that we see in Scripture. Think about it. One could really not be much further from God than to be a pagan, Canaanite, harlot. Yet, God found in her a heart that would respond to him. And so he reached 
out to her and he gave her the faith to believe in him. And, and just notice again at the end of verse 11, her testimony, she says, For the Lord your God, Yahweh your Elohim, is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. I mean, it's a statement of the transcendence of God and of the eminence of God, that God is here as well as there, and God is everywhere. When you think about that in the context of, of Canaanite culture, the Canaanites didn't believe that. Canaanites had all these rinky-dink rinky gods, and, uh, you know, the god of this, the god of that, and the god of something else, and often their spheres of authority kind of blended together. You weren't sure who, what god was over what, so you had to appease them both, or whatever, you know. And so to come up with this concept that there is one God, Lord of all, is absolutely unique. It was not something she could have come up with on her own. You study world religions and you discover that you won't come across primitive societies that believe in one single solitary God, creator of heaven and earth, and who is also available to, to mankind. There are always multiple spirits, multiple gods. It's just... Of course, there are multiple demons, that's why. Then we noted last time at the end of class that as James tells us in the second chapter, and we won't go back to that again, but he says that by her action here, by hiding these spies, putting them under the flax, telling that they aren't there, uh, testifying as we read here, that she was validating the faith that God had given to her. She was proving that the faith was real. These works of hers caused others to know that her faith was genuine. What is interesting is to notice the difference that true faith makes in God's willingness to use people for his purpose. Let me read a couple of verses from the very first chapter of Matthew. Verses 5 and 6. And to Salmon was born Boaz by Rahab. And to Boaz was born Obed by Ruth, and to Obed, Jesse, and to Jesse was born David the king. Rahab left harlotry as God delivered her and her family. When the city was destroyed, she left this practice, and she married one of the leaders of the tribe of Judah. You'll notice as we read the passage this morning that she said that would they be willing to protect her, her brothers, her sisters, and her parents? No statement of a husband, no statement of children. And so she does get married, and she marries this man, Salmon, of the tribe of Judah, and she becomes the mother of Boaz. And Boaz, as you know, is the, is the great figure in the book of Ruth. And she became thereby the great-great-grandmother of David the king, the greatest king of all the history of Israel. But that pales in light of the fact that through David came Messiah. And so here she is, a Canaanite harlot in the human lineage of Jesus Christ. What, what further does that tell us of the humility that was involved in Jesus Christ taking on flesh and becoming a man? Not that there's any line of any human being in which there is, uh, you know, goodness and perfection. We're all corrupt. But it just illustrates the fact here that she, he, Jesus Christ, was willing to be a descendant of a Canaanite harlot. I think it's an interesting sidelight also to note here that 
Boaz's willingness to marry the Moabitess Ruth may have been encouraged by the example of his father marrying the Canaanitess Rahab. I mean, really, you, you think about it, the scripture tells us and told the Jews, the, the Hebrews, that they weren't supposed to intermix with these pagan peoples. They especially weren't supposed to intermarry with them. But, but God's statement relative to that wasn't that there was something, you know, that uh, Canaanites had cooties or something. It was that Canaanites were chasing after other gods. But if a Canaanite became converted, then the Canaanite was no longer a spiritual Canaanite. It's just like the scripture tells us in Romans that you and I are the spiritual descendants of Abraham. So we are spiritual Israel, even though we may not have any blood of Abraham in us whatsoever, but spiritually we are the descendants of Abraham. And so by her faith, Rahab became a descendant of Abraham, as it were, spiritually. In Joshua chapter 2, verse 12, we discovered that Rahab implored the spies to deal kindly with her as she had done with them. She asked for their pledge that they would be willing to deliver her and her family from the chaos that was coming in the conquest of the city of Jericho. She didn't know, of course, how the city would fall, but she knew the city would fall. She had this sense within her that the God of Israel was going to deliver Jericho into the hands of the Israelites, just as he had delivered the kingdoms across the Jordan River to Israel. And so she asked for their pledge. And the, and the spies swore to protect her upon one condition, that she not say a word about them having been there or what their business was. Well, she had already covered for them. So... That was fairly easy for her to promise. Well, let's read on, uh, beginning at verse 15. Joshua chapter 2, verse 15. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was on the city wall, so that she was living on the wall. And she said to them, Go to the hill country, lest the pursuers happen upon you, and hide yourself there for three days until the pursuers return. Then afterward you may go on your way. So the men said to her, We shall be free from this oath to you, which you have made us swear, unless when we come into the land you tie this cord of scarlet thread in the window through which you let us down, and gather to yourselves, to yourself, into your house, your father and your mother and your brothers and all your father's household. And it shall come about that anyone who goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be upon his own head. And we shall be free, but anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head if a hand is laid on him. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be free from the oath which you have made us swear. And she said, According to your words, so be it. So she sent them away, and they departed, and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. Some strange-sounding words there. But they aren't when you understand how uh, ancient architecture used to occur. It was not uncommon for buildings to be built using the wall as the rear wall of the house. One less wall to build, right? You just build right up against the city wall and you've got the rear wall of your house. 
and, and then you just have to build the other sides. And of course, the wall of the city, being as high as it is, gives you the opportunity to build a multi-storied building. And it was not uncommon for them to build houses or structures, multi-stories, that actually overtopped the wall so that you could actually look out over the top of the wall. And in many ways, city authorities weren't against that because if you then built your house so that it was higher, it meant the wall was higher in that area too. So it you know, gave it even further height along the top of the wall besides the actual height of the wall itself. And so the two spies accepted her word and were willing to move on from there and to accept this opportunity to escape. What is very interesting is, now obviously you can see God in this, the city's authorities that had come to her to ask her, you know, we saw these guys go into your house, where are they? And she says, well, you better catch them. They're probably on their way to Jericho and you better go out real quickly and see if you can't catch them. That they were so accepting of her word that they never came back to, well, better check anyway, and, and let's just inspect her house to make sure, or to set a guard on her door or to set a guard on her window. I mean, they knew her window was looking out over the top of the wall, but they did nothing about that. They didn't set a guard at all. Now, we read back in verse 2 of this passage that it was nighttime when the officers came to Rahab's house. So basically, the sun had already set when the officers came to the house in the first place. And so all of what we're reading about here is occurring under the cover of darkness. She's gone up to the roof. She's talking to them. She's getting this pledge from them. And now under the cover of darkness, she is allowing these two men with a rope to go down from her window to the ground below outside the walls of the city. I think we're not talking about probably much more than a 30-foot drop. Uh, ancient walls, for the most part, weren't more than 20, 30 feet high, uh, generally speaking. You probably, I don't know if you have like I have, but uh, years ago we got one of these Moody Bible Institute film strips. Film strips, so you have all little colored cartoon pictures and you have a tape that plays with it. And, and we got one of those when we were teaching uh, younger children. This is actually quite a few years ago. Anyway, um, it was so funny because the, they portray the walls of Jericho as if they're about 200 feet tall, you know, in this cartoon thing. It makes the city look like it's about half a mile across with walls that are, you know, 200 feet tall. And uh, you just get this sense that, whoa, I mean, nobody could ever get in there. But the city walls weren't that tall. Uh, I mean, walls that were 50 feet tall were extraordinary, uh, out, of the, out of the ordinary. Uh, so we're probably not talking about more than um, 30 feet. In fact, if you go to the site of Jericho today, to the old city, Tel Sultana they call it, and, uh, and you look at the diggings that have occurred there, where they've uncovered one of the towers of ancient Jericho, probably Jericho preceding the Jericho we're reading about here. But you look at that tower, and, and that tower is not more than 20, 25 feet tall. So it's not that great a distance. It's interesting here what Rahab tells them. She doesn't say, okay, I'll lower you over the wall, and good luck, guys. She tells them where to go. She says, don't flee west, because west is back towards the Jordan, and that's where they're looking for you. You know, I sent these guys out in a wild goose chase, and they're out scouring the landscape for you, so don't go that way. Go the opposite direction. Go east and hide in the hills. Now, if you go to the site of Jericho, you discover that Jericho is not very far, maybe a mile or so, from the lower slopes of the escarpment that comes down out of the Judean highlands. And there is a major wadi, which is a dry riverbed, 
that comes down through there and empties, broadens out and empties out right there at Jericho. It's called the Wadi Kilt. And if you go up, as we have done, we've walked through the Wadi down to Jericho from uh, St. George's Monastery. Do you remember, Lynn? I've forgotten the name of the monastery. There's a monastery uh, back in the Wadi Kilt that was built later on by the, uh, by the Greek Orthodox uh, people. Anybody else been there? Remember? I can't remember the name of the monastery. But anyway, we've walked from there down the end of the wadi and, and out into uh, Jericho from there. And along the way, you discover there are all kinds of caves. All kinds of caves. So I think what happened was these men were told to go east, and they fled east. They probably went into the wadi, and they probably went up into some of the caves or one of the caves there and hid themselves for the next several days. She knew the search would continue that these guys would that night run down and they'd, they'd probably go all the way to the, to the Jordan River looking for them, not finding them, and so they'd spend the next several days, three days, she thought maybe, uh, searching the whole area for these, these spies. And so she told them to hide out there for three days. I think it's very important to note here that it's obvious that the spies did not just, quote, accidentally fortuitously stumble across a woman who had such sympathy and wisdom. I don't think when they got back to Joshua, they, they said, you wouldn't believe the luck we had, the extraordinary luck. I, I don't make an issue out of this, but it really bothers me when I, when I hear Christians use the word luck or lucky and that kind of thing, because there's no luck or luckiness. I mean, it doesn't exist in the first place. There's no such thing as luck or luckiness. And for Christians, definitely it doesn't exist because our lives are ordained from above. It, God guides every step of our way. And he brings into our lives what he has chosen to bring into our lives to, to shape us, to form us, to direct us, that we will become the people he has called us to be. And, and every encounter we have is part of God's plan for our lives. And here we find that God had clearly prepared this woman. And God had arranged this encounter. Again, as I mentioned when we first talked about it, how could these guys walk into the city of Jericho? They've never been in here before. There's several thousand people in this uh, city. Streets, you know, busy with people milling around. How could they accidentally come to the house of Rahab and discover that she is the one seeking the Lord? I mean, the scripture clearly tells us that there is no one else in that city that was seeking the Lord but Rahab. Because it says in Hebrews that she alone survived. I mean, in her household, but it wasn't because her household necessarily believed personally in God, but they believed her word. And hopefully that led to their own personal faith. You know, the scriptures doesn't say about that. You might imply it. So to the true believer that these two men went into a strange city and came to the house of Rahab, and she welcomed them in, hid them, and made them promise that they would deliver her because she believed that their Lord, Yahweh, was the God of heaven and God of earth. I think as believers, it's not hard for us to accept that God arranged all that, that God guided their every step in that strange city until they came to that place and to this woman. We often quote the passage from Proverbs 3, in which we read, in all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your path. 
And uh, I, I've heard a lot of people, that's one of, you know, the Proverbs uh, 3, 5, and 6, that's their life verse or their favorite verse or something like that. And it's a great passage. But do we really believe that? Do we believe it to the, to the ultimate? That as we seek God, He will guide every step of our lives. And none of our encounters are accidental. Well, the two men, the spies, knew that they could promise this woman security and that they would see to it that she was defended. But then, of course, it came into their minds that there's going to be a chaotic battle going on here. Now, most all of us have watched World War II battles, and we know about the, you know, the shooting and the cannons exploding and all of this. But when, when you think of a battle at this time, there wouldn't be that. But there's an absolute melee that goes on, just chaos. As, as people are chasing through the streets and fighting in the doorways and throwing stuff out of windows on the attacking soldiers. I mean, it's just bedlam in this hand-to-hand -hand combat. So what it is, you know, it's you're standing here eyeball to eyeball fighting with this guy. You're not shooting at him 100 yards away. And so in such a mess, how can you guarantee the security of these people? They had no idea that the wall would fall down except for her part of the wall, which would leave it sticking up there really obvious as to where she was. They wouldn't have this concept in their mind. They thought they would have to break into the city and then, let's see, what part of the wall was she on? You know, how would you guarantee all this? And so they put a few more conditions on their promise, their pledge, that their life would be as her life. They added three additional conditions. First of all, she was to tie the scarlet cord in her window so that her house could be clearly identified from the outside because they were going to surround the city, right? And you can imagine now, think about, think ahead. They, they're going to march around that city. They're going to march around one time for six days each day. And then the last day, they're going to march around it seven times. And can you imagine as they marched around, they were looking up there at these various buildings on the wall and they, there it is, you know, there's the window. They probably pointed at it and the, probably the soldiers on the city wall guarding, around, what are these guys all pointing up there for? You know, maybe there's a weakness over there. There was, but they didn't know what kind of weakness it really was. And, you know, that they all noted where that scarlet cord was. And the soldiers on the wall would not be able to see the scarlet cord because the window was probably flush with the outer surface of the wall. And so it'd be hanging in the window, visible from the ground below, but not visible from the wall above. Kyle and Delich, commentators, believe that the Hebrew wording here implies that the scarlet cord was the same one by which she let the spies down from her window. And Matthew Henry, another well-known commentator, agrees. He says, This was like the blood sprinkled on the doorpost, which secured the firstborn from the destroying angel. The same cord that she made use of for the preservation of these Israelites was to be made use of for her preservation. What we serve and honor God with, we may accept, expect He will bless and make comfortable to us. And so it could very well have been that the very cord that she used to hang out, I mean, she probably didn't have a, a, you know, a manila rope hanging on the wall someplace here. This was probably some of the bed danglings or something, you know, uh, that she used as a harlot. And she strung all this pretty colored stuff together and it was strong enough and, and she was able to let these men down and so she left a hunk of it hanging in the window there. I don't think she left the part hanging clear down the wall on the outside, but a hunk hanging in the window there so that it could be seen. Secondly, they required of her that she gather all of her family into that house 
Because how in the world could they guarantee the family if they were living all over the city? Wouldn't be any way of knowing who they were, which house was theirs. And so she had to make sure they got all into that same house. Now, you have to think about this for a minute. She is a Canaanite harlot. Her parents, her brothers and sisters, know her occupation. Are, are they going to accept her word? By the way, the Jews are going to capture this city, and we're all going to die except for me and my house. So you better get into my house. <laughs> you remember Lot's situation. When, when Lot was told to get out of Sodom and, and flee with his wife and his daughters and, and the daughter's husbands, the daughter's husbands basically said, flake off, we, you're full of baloney. And of course, they got fried when the city was destroyed. But even Lot's wife, whoa, what's going on back there, you know? And, uh, and she perished. And even such a one as that didn't really believe. And yet these people, her parents, her brothers, her sisters, all these people, had to believe her word and hence, at least indirectly, in the God she was speaking of to even gather in this house. Now it could be, of course, that they didn't gather into the house too soon because it might look a little funny. But in the chaos, when the battle started, of course, uh, for people to be running into a house would probably not be noticed too much, but we don't know those particular details. Thirdly, the condition was no one was to leave that house once the battle for the city had begun. Obviously, if they did, you know, their blood would be on their own heads because nobody could identify them in the streets. Rahab agreed, of course, to the conditions, and she immediately tied the red scarlet cord in her window. No wasting time here, just bang, there it is, guys, see it? I've got it there already. She was acting, of course, in faith. She couldn't be certain that the spies would live up to their word or that they would remember, even though when you think about it, how could they forget you know, what they had been through? But of course, she couldn't be sure that the Israelite leadership would accept the pledge, that they would agree to what the spies had made as conditions. They might say, hey, hey, you know, we just can't promise that. It, you know, Joshua could have said, no, you know, we, we can't. We can't guarantee that because we don't know what's, what's going to happen here. So she was really acting in faith, trusting that her act of mercy would be re reciprocated by the God in whom she was placing her trust. That whatever the spies did or didn't remember, whatever the Israelite leadership would or wouldn't do, that God would hear and preserve her. That was where her faith really was, ultimately. Let's read the last three verses of the chapter. Then they departed and came to the hill country and remained there for three days until the pursuers returned. Now the pursuers had sought them all along the road but had not found them. Then the two men returned and came down from the hill country and crossed over and came to Joshua the son of Nun. And they related to him all that had happened. They said to Joshua, Surely the Lord has given all the land into our hands and all the inhabitants of the land, moreover, have melted away before us. These two men heeded the advice of a Canaanite harlot, and they went into the hills west of the city of Jericho. The scripture here says they came down out of the hill country, meaning they went into the hills some <coughs> distance, how far we're not told possibly into the Wadi Kilt, as I described before. That would be the most logical place for them to go. Maybe too logical, I don't know. 
But nevertheless, they probably hid in a cave there somewhere and waited out the three days. Now, what's probably implied here, although not expressly stated, was she probably gave him some food too and maybe some water. You guys are going to be hiding out, so here, take this food, take this water with you because, you know, three days and three nights in a, in a cave without any food or water could be a little, get a little old after a while. So uh, that's uh, probably implied here. In the meantime, these searchers who had been sent on this wild goose chase with such enthusiasm by Rahab, go quickly, you'll catch them, have been combing the land between Jericho and the Jordan, looking everywhere, under every bush and behind every tree and, and, and in every little gully in the valley there, looking for these two men. For three days, they scoured the landscape. Of course, it was a hopeless activity. It's about a six-mile stretch from Jericho to the fords of the, of the Jordan River. And so that's a bit of a space to have to scour. And so they did this. And it came back, of course, empty-handed. Now, think about this. Did any of those guys, after they're digging around out there, looking around for these guys, begin to think, I wonder if that gal <laughs> sent us on a wild goose chase? You know? Did any of them think that way? We don't know. Because there is no mention made of them returning to Rahab and saying, all right, now, where did you put those guys? And cross-examining her and searching their ha her house. It doesn't say they didn't, but it doesn't say they did either. I think the Lord just simply threw a cloud over their minds. And they accepted what she said. They went searching and they never doubted her word. They never suspected her at all. Never came back and looked for her or any evidence in her house for any evidence of these individuals. God was at work protecting his people. Well, after three days, I think they were fairly long days for the spies too, they came down out of the hill country. It may have been at night that they came down and, and made their way across. I don't know. It's a pretty rugged country and you're liable to fall into something walking across there in the middle of the night, but it could have been at night just to protect themselves. Anyway, they made their way carefully back, got across the Jordan River and went back into the Israelite camp. Now, Joshua has been back there waiting for these guys. Remember he had said originally, take the next three days and get ready because we're going to launch an attack here. Well, those three days are gone now because it took at least a full day for them to get over there and back. And now they've been hiding up in the hills for another three days. So they're at least a day late for the rendezvous with Joshua. But when Joshua hears their words, he doesn't care. God's in charge of the timetable anyway. And, and the words of these spies absolutely delight Joshua. Look at the words again in verse 24. Surely the Lord has given the land into our hands, and the inhabitants of the land, moreover, have melted away before us. Just melted away before us. Contrast those words with the words of the ten spies back at Kadesh Barnea, who said, yeah, the land is good, but walls are high and the armies are great and there are giants in the land we're but grasshoppers in their eyes whoa we can't do that I mean these are the words that Joshua and Caleb spoke they're the two spies that came back and said yeah we can take the land God's going to give it to us and these guys are saying the same things Joshua is just resonating <laughs> with the report that these two spies are bringing the fact that the Canaanites were reported as being totally dispirited. And the fact that God had raised up a friend in the heart of Jericho greatly encouraged the Israelites. Now, can you just imagine 
Can you just imagine the word spreading through the Israelite camp after these spies came back? Not only, hey, it looks good, we can do it, the enemy is melted, but the word of this woman, Rahab, buzz, 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 all the way through the camp, suddenly I believe Rahab became a folk heroine overnight. They all wanted to meet Rahab, I bet, as they thought about this woman who preserved the two spies and delivered the message to them that the land is, everybody's a chicken, everybody's afraid, uh, you can take it, no problem. And the, her confirming word that God will give you the city. I think she became probably the best known woman that had never been met yet except by the two spies throughout the whole camp. Let's dig into the third chapter a little bit here. Read the first six verses. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and he and all the sons of Israel set out from Shittim and came to the Jordan, and they lodged, lodged there before they crossed. And it came about at the end of three days that the officers went through the midst of the camp, and they commanded the people, saying, When you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God with the Le Levitical priests carrying it, then you shall set out from your place and go after it. However, there shall be between you and it a distance of about 2,000 cubits by measure. Do not come near it, that you may know the way by which you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And Joshua spoke to the priests, saying, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and cross over ahead of the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went ahead of the people. What kind of a man is Joshua? Joshua is a man of action and a man of faith. He got the word. It's a go. Does he wait around? Does he put out a fleece? No. He knows what the Lord wants him to do. And so the very next morning, after the spies had returned, he moved the whole Israelite camp from the place of the acacia trees where they had been camping to the eastern bank of the Jordan River, a distance of about seven miles. The whole camp, lock, stock, barrel, two million people. Shift them seven miles over to the east bank of the Jordan River. That took a little while. Now again, the Jordan was at flood stage. The meltwater from the snows of Mount Hermon were boiling down. They had been flowing into the Lake Sea of Galilee and the Sea of Galilee was overflowing into the Jordan and this water was coming down the river towards the Dead Sea, and they were just north of the Dead Sea. And into, of course, was coming the waters from, from all the other brooks, the Yarmuk and the uh, Jabbok and all these others were flowing in, and uh, it was the time of the year when there was a great deal of moisture available and moving down the river. And so Joshua brought the people to the river at the time of the year which would be most difficult at all to cross the River Jordan. Sounds like God's planning is a little off here. God, your timetable is screwed up. You probably should come six months later when the river is really low and you could probably walk across it without getting your midsection wet. No, he brings them to the river when it's at its greatest volume and velocity. Ever wonder why God plans what he plans for your life? Lord, why am I at this point when it's, the river is at its greatest volume and velocity? <laughs> It's because he wants us to know that we're going to get across by his power alone, not by ours. Not by our might, not by our power, but by the Spirit of God is this going to be accomplished. 
He doesn't want something where we can pole vault the river and say, whoa, look what I've done. I pole vaulted the Jordan. Nope. You're going to come to a place where you can't do it. And you know you can't do it. And only God can do it by his strength and by his power. So Israel camped for three days by the bank of the Jordan River to complete the preparations for invasion. Now Joshua could have thought, if I let these people camp by the river and they look at this river for three days and they see this thing roaring down, they see how wide it is, they're going to get discouraged and they're going to think, Joshua, do you really know what you're doing here? How are we going to get across this river? We don't have any boats. We can't swim this, this, this flood. They had been wandering in the desert for 40 years. How many mighty streams do you find in the desert? Well, after a thunderstorm, you might see a little water rushing down a wadi. But they hadn't seen a river with that much water in it in the entire 40 years. The only ones who would have seen that much water before were those who had been in Egypt, like Joshua, and seen the Nile. And so this was a rather intimidating sight for many of them. And I think many of them began to wonder whether Joshua had a screw loose someplace, or at least had his timing off. But what is interesting, change the tape, what is interesting here is that very few of those who stood there on the banks of that river raiding the cross could remember the parting of the Red Sea because the bulk of them had been born since that time. Only those that were 19 down to zero were alive, and we don't, and of course scripture doesn't guarantee all of those were still alive even, were alive at the time of the parting of the Red Sea, and some of them would have been so small they wouldn't have remembered it. And so there were only a few who could actually remember the parting of the Red Sea as they stood there, and the bulk of them were saying, well, yeah, you may remember something about the Red Sea, but I don't remember anything about the Red Sea. And uh, looking at that water and saying, how are we going to get across? But Joshua, it doesn't seem from this passage that Joshua even hesitated for a moment because I think transfixed in his mind was the heaps of the Red Sea standing up and the dry land before as the whole nation of Israel came across that body of water into the Sinai. And I think as he looked at the Jordan, he thought, for God, this is a piece of cake compared to the Red Sea. And I don't think that there was a slightest chink in his armor of confidence that God would do no less for him now than he had done for Moses 40 years before. Why? Because he said, as I did for Moses, so I will do for you. And Joshua believed the Lord. And what you find here is a man full of confidence, full of faith, to the point that he actually marches them right to the river <laughs> and then waits for God to do his thing. Well, I think we'll pick up the continuing story there next week.